Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. So Ephesians chapter 1, I'll just tell you now, we will be in Ephesians in 2024. Uh, I love this book. It is one of the uh, just most strongest uh, letters that Paul wrote, in my opinion. I love whatever book I'm preaching through the day of, but this one is particularly important to me. Uh, But uh, as we get into it, we're just looking at the first two verses today, and you'll think, oh, goody. Uh, Scott last week had a good influence on our pastor because he let us out on time. Um, well, no, I'm going to charge extra today uh, because he let you out so early. Uh, we can't have that. So, uh, but we're just looking at the first two verses today. I, so oftentimes, if you're reading, we might just skip over the introduction. Um, and it's very important to grasp what Paul is saying because really what Paul does is give us a, an outline for the letter of, uh, uh, of Ephesians to the church. And so as we, we think about this, you may have been in a position where I was about a month ago when I went to the doctor and got the results of my blood work. Uh, and he said, Mr. Irving, you need to lose some weight. I don't look like I need to, but I'll tell you, I promise you I do. I'm big boned, right? You, some of you may have been told that in your life. Yeah, yeah, okay. But uh, my, my cholesterol was a little high. Now, listen, I don't need an email telling me how to lower my cholesterol, okay? I, I know what to do. It's just got, I got to do it, okay? But what I'm getting to is that when we come into a place where we hear news like that, we will often start to try to implement change in order to change our situation. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, a church that he planted, a church that he had a personal stake in, in starting and seeing it remain healthy. It's a letter of six chapters long. You can read it in about 30 minutes. I would encourage you to do that sometime this week. It is one of the most glorious texts in all of the scripture. Klein Snodgrass has said it. I like what he said. I don't know him personally, but I love what he said about it. He said, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history. Why is that? Because from the very beginning, Paul tells us what our position is before God in Christ. And then goes on to explain how we are to practice or remain faithful in the gospel as we live out our life. That essentially is the outline of Ephesians. The first three chapters... Paul talks about our position in Christ before God the Father. And it is only in Christ before God the Father. We don't get to him any other way. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he begins to talk about our condition as a result of our position before God the Father or how we practice out of that position in Christ. But as we go through, you'll see throughout Ephesians, like what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of in Christ. Think about that for a moment. Just think and dwell the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is much to unpack there, and I'm surprised Paul got it in six chapters. If you want to know why church is so important, not the building 
or the time or the location, but the people? Why is the church so important? You'll find the answer in this letter. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as my college pastor says, the Baptist verses, because we always go there. There is the gospel. It is the heart of the message, and it is what the scriptures point to. It explains who we are before Christ and who we are after Christ. It's a glorious passage of scripture. I can't wait to preach it next year. This letter is full of encouragement. You find in chapter 3 how Paul prays for you, the church. And, and, and in doing so, at the end of chapter 3, before he gets to the practical stuff, he bursts forth in worship of the God who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Most of all, he is able to take a dead man in his sin and his transgression against God and make him alive with Christ. I mean, who could ever do that? God can. And then you hit the chapters of practical theology or how we live out this condition, the condition of our position before God. It has huge implications for worship. It has implications for understanding grace. Prayer plays a vital role in Ephesians. As Paul calls the church to pray, it's a big deal. And if you want to know how to pray big, you read the book of Ephesians. We find our identity as the church here. We find the source of unity in the church and how we are to live with one another because sometimes we get on each other's nerves. I'll put it kindly. Marriage. What is the point of marriage and how, what is its job? What is its role? It's not to marry whomever we might choose or however we might identify. God has ordained a specific thing for marriage and a place for marriage in the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Parenting. How in the world did we get where we are parenting our children? Ephesians has a blueprint for it. Work and employment. Tomorrow's Monday. Are you ready? If you're not, go read Ephesians. And then, because of Ephesus and where Paul was writing and where the church was, he finishes with Ephesians chapter 6, which teaches us how to fight. Not MMA style, but on our knees. Ephesians is a big deal. It's a, it's a great letter, and I can't wait to get to it in January of next year as we work our way through the entire New Testament this year. But I would encourage you, if you're not in our reading plan, please join in. You'll be reading through this letter this week. As I mentioned a while ago, Ephesus, it was not an easy place to minister. Ministry isn't easy no matter where you are, but especially in Paul's day in the city of Ephesus. It was a difficult place. It's a major player on the scene back then. It's regional trade, being a coastal city, lots of people in and out, lots of hustle and bustle of a, of a city. And Paul encountered many times opposition, strong opposition to the gospel in his preaching. But as Paul always does, he carried on faithful and true, and a church was birthed in that city. It was an urban setting, and for its time, the people were steeped in paganism. They had a God for everything. They had a temple for every God they had, and they worshipped it and worshipped all of those gods in really grotesque ways. And it was a hub of ungodly activity. And so 
Paul, inspired by the Lord, would pen chapter 6 regarding spiritual warfare. He would write to the church regarding marriage, regarding unity, and regarding who we are in Christ, that the Ephesians would not waver from the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And so we read the first two verses this morning as an introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, our Father, it is my prayer that you would, in your grace, grant to us that we would understand our position in Christ and our condition, that we might begin to understand and comprehend the great, the greatness, the significance of the blessings that you speak about in, chapter, in verse 3, the blessings which you have given to us in Christ. So, Father, would you open our minds to understand and our hearts to appreciate that we might glorify you fully and live accordingly. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul, opening greeting here. That may not sound like much to you, but there's so much to unpack as he gives his opening greeting, which is a common greeting, it's actually a little bit shorter than some of his other letters because Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. So the church there knew who he was. They knew him well. He didn't need to expound on his apostleship at this point. He just simply needed to say, how you doing, guys? This is Paul. I'm an apostle by the will of God. Let's get on with it. So he gets into it to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What you find in Ephesus and what you find in the first two verses here is that Paul begins to lay the groundwork, the foundation for who you are and who you are supposed to be in Christ Jesus. So first, let's talk about who we are or our position in Christ Jesus. Paul says there at the, uh, verse one, maybe part B, if you will, to the saints, to the saints. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints. He's addressing this letter to the saints of the church of Ephesus. Let's, we're going to camp there for a moment. And what Paul does here is he gives them and us today our position, sainthood. One of the reasons Christians are so ineffective today is because we don't realize or we don't completely understand who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in Christ. So this morning, we'll call you to consider who you are in Christ. But pastor, you say, it says, to the saints. I mean, I'm not a super elite Christian. I'm not on that special forces team that goes out knocking on door to door, winning people to Christ. Man, that, I'm not working miracles, that super elite Christian bunch. That crosses me off the list because saints, the saints are a, a small elite group of people who've been doing a lot of fantastic, wonderful things, miraculous things even. And, and so they were made saints by the church. Or maybe you're thinking they're an NFL football team in New Orleans. I don't know where you are, okay? But all of that that I just went through, that's the understanding, and that's what a man in Rome says, okay? 
And I, I don't mean that to be offensive, but that's where we get that understanding of who's Michael, uh, Christopher, Paul. You know, we get all of these names. Saint Teresa. We get all these people. They're, they're they're made saints by the church in Rome. That has absolutely zero to do with what Paul is talking here. The Bible does not define, define saints that way. Okay, so according to what the Scripture teaches, the Bible teaches that saints are not a special class of Christians, elite, small in number, but rather the New Testament teaches that all Christians, young, old, fat, skinny, poor, wise, tall, short, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the language, if we are in Christ, we are set apart by Christ for his sacred and special purpose in the church. So friend, if you are in Christ... You are a saint. That ought to rock your world. That Christ, in Christ, we are positioned in such a way. Now, that's not for us to go ahead and, and go get a big head and think, woo, look at me, I'm a saint. Don't you dare do that. Don't go to dinner or lunch this afternoon and tell your, your waiter or waitress, hey, I'm a saint, you better treat me right. You know, don't be, don't be like that. Saints are humble. Don't be like that. So because of Christ Jesus... Friend, our position in Christ is sainthood. The word is descriptive of what happens in our hearts. In Christ Jesus, we are made holy only because of Christ. And in Christ, we are put in a standing before God on account of his righteousness. Our sins have been removed and placed on Christ he is the one who bears the weight of our sin, and God imputes his Christ's righteousness to us. He sees us in Christ as having the righteousness of Christ. It's not ours. We have no right to brag, no reason to boast except in Christ alone. And as we remain in Christ, we grow in Christ-likeness. You need to be listening very carefully. This position of sainthood is not of our doing. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, another introduction, and I'll get to it quickly. Paul says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, if you keep reading, you'll find this group of people, this church of Corinth, you'll find they're messed up. Chapter 1, Paul says, you're divided. You're fighting over who to follow. You got divisions Chapters 3 and 4, that kind of really carries over into chapter 2, and he points them back to Christ. Chapter 3, another chapter of division in the church. Chapter 4, they don't know how to treat the apostles. Paul's having to defend himself to the church. Can you imagine that? I mean, he's Paul, my goodness. Chapter 5, they've got a sexually immoral brother in the church who needed to be kicked out, and Paul's reminding him of that. Fortunately, we read in 2 Corinthians, it appears that he does come back. He repented of his sin, and he, he came back into the church, and Paul congratulates them for that. So, yes, this is the point of discipline. Chapter 6, they're suing each other. That's always a mark for church health, isn't it? Chapter 7, their marriages are failing and falling apart, and they're 
surrounded by troubled relationships. Chapter 8, they're causing one another to stumble over food offered to idols. Chapter 10, they are guilty of idolatry. Chapter 11, it's a gross misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. Also, you've got the issue of women not necessarily identifying themselves as being married, coming to church, which in the context of Corinth is a mess because of all the pagan worship and the abuse that happened in those temples. You got the Lord's Supper abuse, the rich indulging in food and wine and getting drunk, and the poor are left with absolutely nothing and they're neglected, and yet they all then take the Lord's Supper. That's not supposed to happen. In chapters 12 and 14, they're abusing spiritual gifts, making way too much out of the gift and not enough of the giver. Chapter 13, you figure out they don't know how to love one another. And so Paul writes this beautiful chapter, The Way of Love. Chapter 14, another chapter on gifts and correction and orderly worship. We're not all in here just hooping and hollering, cartwheeling down the aisles and rolling and doing all that weird stuff, barking like dogs or whatever. There's order to worship. There's a reason that it is that way. Chapter 15, what may be the scariest thing is that they're confused and many of them doubt the resurrection of Christ. And yet, in all of that, Paul, in the introduction, wrote to the saints. These people, as I said, were messed up. Their sainthood was not. Their position before God in Christ was not. Because that position was not based on performance. It is based on Christ. Friends, that sainthood, I'll remind you, is not about you. It is not about me. The position of saint is established by the grace of God in Christ Jesus alone. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We'll go back to the Baptist verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This right here is what sets the church and Christianity apart from the rest of the world. This is what makes us different. That grace, being God's unmerited favor, and we see what he says here in his prayer in the opening line back in the introduction when, when Paul says, grace to you, may God's unmerited favor be for you. This is what sets us apart because all of the world religions are based on performance. How well I perform in this life if I just do enough good. And listen, you don't even have to be following some of the world religion. Most of Americans will say, if I just do enough good, I hope to make it to heaven. That is not God's grace. That is performance-based. If I do enough good, if I perform good enough in this life, he'll let me in. I'm sure of it. That's what most people will say. But Christianity is different. Following Christ is different because it is about the wonder of what Christ has done. This is why Paul, at the end of chapter 3, chapter three breaks out in worship 
to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or imagine. Grace to you. Well, what has the Lord done? Great question. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave or he sent his one and only son. He sent him. He gave him. We didn't want him. If you read the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. We didn't want him. God sent him anyway. The son then dies on the cross, having poured out his blood for us. He's resurrected it on the third day, which points to the fact that his death was not his fault, but rather our fault. God takes then our sin, puts it on his son, and now, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit plays a part in this, in that it is he who speaks to your heart and draws men and women unto the Lord. And as he draws them, he convinces that this gospel is truly good news. And when the Holy Spirit calls, the response, because we have to respond, the response is faith. Trust in Jesus and what he has done for us at the cross, all at the same time turning away from our sin. Faith and trust is the basis of our salvation in Christ. We must trust in what Christ has done in the cross and in the resurrection. And at that moment, the moment that we come to Christ in trust and we've turned away from our sin, the moment that that happens, we, by God's grace, are positioned in Christ before the Father. That's why Paul says to the saints, that's who you are in Christ. The Bible says two things about you, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory, and that you are in Christ. That is a moment of salvation. And it is God's grace that establishes you in Christ. Again, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the focus here is not what we must do to gain sainthood, but rather what God has done for us in Christ, so that as we come to Christ, we are positioned now before God in his Son. That's the only way we can stand before God. And we won't stand long because Revelation describes us as taking off our crowns and casting them before the King of Kings. So Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus, he prays in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now peace, friends, peace does not mean that everything in your life is hunky-dory. A-okay, finer than frog hair, all right? That's not what that word means. It does sometimes in context means peace, as when Jesus is in the water and the water calms, right? It's there. But this particular time, it is the Hebrew word shalom or the Greek word arene. They're together. They're he doesn't use Hebrew here, but that's the word, the Greek word that Paul uses is the Greek word that's used for shalom in the Old Testament. It is a common greeting, but it's so much more than howdy. It's so much more than how you doing. It's so much more. It is actually a prayer of hope. It is a prayer of hope for God's blessing upon you. His grace and peace to you. Grace to you and his peace. It is a prayer for blessing. It is a prayer for God's best for you. 
The best place to be is always in the center of God's will. Curtis Vaughn pointed out that it comes to mean wholeness. It comes to mean soundness. It is, the, it is not the absence of strife. It is not the absence of conflict or hardship, but it is rather wanting God's best. And so Paul says, grace to you and peace. Now, in Christ, positioned before God the Father, we are now able to experience his best, which is his grace and mercy, his kindness. I mean, we could go on down the list. We'll get there in a moment. Don't get these two things backwards. It's not peace to you and grace. It's grace to you first, then peace. So we know we have an opportunity to experience God's best in Christ. Too often we will get that backwards. I'll come to Jesus when my life is straightened out. I'll come to Jesus. I'll go to church more when I have a little more peaceful situation happening in my life. When everything is calm and right, everything is in its right place, then I should be able to make time to come and worship with the church or come and do the little things I think I'm supposed to be checking off in order to maintain my salvation. Grace in Christ, position, peace. Listen to John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or make myself known to him. Here again is our position in Christ. He loves me. The condition or the practice then is I love him in return. This is why Paul breaks out in doxology and worship. This is why we gather, and when we gather, we worship because of what God has done, just like we sang this morning. Jesus answered again just a few verses down in John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Loved by the Father and the Son, Father and Son make their home in my life. The practice, the condition, I love Jesus. If you want to know and experience firsthand the peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, then you have to ask yourself, what's my position? Am I in Christ or not? If you're in Christ, you're in the right place, the only place, because you are before the Father. So if you're in Christ, you remember the beauty and the riches of Christianity is not in our morality. That's putting peace first and then grace. The beauty and the glorious riches of Christianity are only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if we want God's peace and we're trying to earn his peace, that's not going to work. It's not based on rule keeping. His peace is only found in knowing and trusting in Christ Jesus and letting the Father and the Son take up residence in our life and in our heart and making themselves known to us as we follow faithfully. Now that is our condition. Faithful in Christ Jesus. That is where we practice from. That is where we walk in Christ, live in Christ. Our condition is what we do for him as a response or as a result of our position in Christ. So here we are. We are dead in our sin. God has made us alive with Christ. 
Now we are in Christ, having repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation. Now we are before the Father only because we are in Christ. Out of this position and being in Christ, we now have the opportunity to understand and grasp and live in his best and his blessing, which is found in the center of his will. Therefore, now I practice, I walk in Christ. That's chapters 4, 5, and 6. And when Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, yes, of course, they have faith in Christ because they are the church. That's why I don't think Paul is referencing their faith in Christ, but rather they are found to be faithful in Christ, which means they're walking in obedience. If we remember who we are in Christ and in Christ alone, it prevents us from saying, I'm saved on Sunday. Whoop, it's Monday. Now I'm not. I messed up. Oh, Lord, I come back. You know, we get this back and forth. James, I think it's James. You know, we look in the mirror. We walk away. We forget who we are in Christ. We're double-minded. The world, we're wishy-washy. We're going every which way when the waves are coming against us. Beloved, you've got to remember who you are in Christ. He will not lose his own. He knows you. If you are in him, he knows you by name. You are in Christ. It is settled. That position in Christ is absolutely settled. And we remain there. We have to keep striving. We keep walking in Christ. We keep pushing to the end. We endure. We can't be bounced back and forth because of our performance. We are going to stumble. We just read in Corinthians. Look, just glance quickly in Corinthians. They were causing one another to stumble. And yet Paul calls them saints. That's going to happen. Our performance is going to be extravagant, and some days it's just going to stink and fall flat. But our position stays. We've established that position. Christ has established that position, rather, by God's grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone. But when my life changes, when the practice of faith changes, that's when we can find ourselves like the Corinthians. And Paul says, let's get that fixed. Let's get that fixed. We have to understand our position. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. The root of the condition is because he first loved us. Because he loved us and sent his son, we love him. Friends, we can attend church all we want. We can read our Bible all we want. We can read all the devotional books we want, listen to all the sermons and podcasts we want. But if you're missing out, you're missing out if your condition is not reflecting that position. That is the call to walk with Jesus. Your condition, your position, your condition has to match position. Because in Christ, now we are called to reflect him to the world. The saints grasp their position by God's grace. And so their condition is one, he says, they are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are walking in faithful obedience. So as we wrap our hearts and our minds around what Paul is writing to us and the truth of the word, what Christ has done for us, this is why we never move past the gospel. We go deeper into it. Because the more we grasp his grace, the more we grasp what he's done for us, the more we begin to reflect that position in our practice, in our walk. Take the songs we've sung this morning, what he's done, all the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven, my future is heaven, 
I praise God for what he's done. What riches of kindness he lavished upon us. His blood was the payment and his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Now I reflect that grace and mercy by telling the world, praise the Lord. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. The only one who could ever save, position, we live for you, reflecting that position in my practice. So for those who are established in Christ, our lives will reflect that grace to those around us. We are to be faithful in Christ. So his grace, we'll sum it up, his grace enacts a permanent position of sainthood. My reaction to that brings about his daily presence in my life, so now I am able to experience him and reflect him to others and tell them about Jesus. Let me read to you again from Colossians chapter one, which we prayed through this morning. In Colossians chapter one, verses 21 through 23, and we'll close with this. Paul wrote again, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There, what did Paul just say? You are out of position. <laughs> you are out. You are dead in your sin and your trespasses. You are alienated. You are hostile in your mind, doing evil, living in sin. Verse 22, he, that is Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's nothing there that I did to deserve that, nothing I did to change that situation. It's all God. You heard that, right? It's all Christ. He reconciled in his body, that is the cross, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ Jesus intervened by reconciling in his body upon the cross, by his flesh, by his death, so that he could and would change your position before God the Father. Verse 23, our practice, our condition, then becomes to press on, to endure, to continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Another letter that's the Galatians. They were shifting from the hope of the gospel. But not the Ephesians, not at this point in their history. And when I read this and I start thinking about sainthood and faithfulness and position before God the Father and practice in my own life, I just step back and I think, my goodness, how great is our God. How great he is to take each one of us, with, well, I assume most of you are saved, some of you may not be saved, and so today he could do that in your life. But for those of you that are in Christ, that we were out of position, Christ Jesus intervened, we trust in that, our practice, our condition now becomes to press on as, God, as Christ Jesus has made us presentable to the Father. Like, I just sit back and think, how great is our God? He could have wiped out Adam and Eve in an instant and started all over. He, he left Noah and his family because they were faithful. 
generation after generation after generation has turned away from him, has chosen worldliness, has chosen sin, and yet his grace still came in his son. We have this blessed assurance, and his name is Jesus. Now, John wrote down what the Spirit of Jesus was saying to the churches in the opening of Revelation, and he included the church in Ephesus. So for about a generation, they did a really fantastic job of walking in the Lord. And Jesus even says, Ephesus, great job at spotting heresy. Great job at spotting false teaching. Fantastic. But he says this, you've abandoned your first love. You abandoned the love you had at first. The people who touched that church and served them, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, later John, all ministered to that church. For the first 40 years or so, they were spot on. But eventually they lost their love for Jesus. That tells me that life became mechanical. And there in Revelation, Jesus called them to repent, turn away from the rules, the self-effort, trying to get yourself a better standing before God, turn away from the world. Friend, it is all about Jesus. The more you know him, the more you love him, And the more you love him, the more faithful you will be. Two questions. One, are you a saint? If you are, praise God. If you're not this morning, I want to encourage you to settle that. We'll be here at the front. I'll be here and some of our deacons will be here. We'd be glad to talk to you more about a relationship with Jesus and trusting him for salvation. If you are a saint, what does that mean for you? What does that look like? Because the more you understand what the Bible says about it, the deeper you understand the God who gave you life. And to know him is absolutely worth everything. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.